What matters more in the workplace, social and cognitive skills or physical skills? Skills, experience or education? Most importantly, what pays more? Creating a network of workplace skills to study what some refer to as the hollowing of American middle class, researchers from MIT give us some very interesting insights into the connection between skills, occupation and income. Welcome to a new episode of the Nature Middle East podcast broadcasting from Cairo, Egypt. Each episode will bring to you some of the most exciting science stories from the Arabic-speaking Middle East. Ahmed Abdelkarim and his colleagues at MIT created a skill ecosystem that maps out how skills are expressed in certain occupations and how likely are two skills useful in the same occupation. Ahmed, who led the project, spoke to our writer Sidir Shouk at length about how he built a network and then found that the skills clustered around two poles, social cognitive skills and sensory physical skills. Ahmed and the other researchers correlated these with educational requirements. They found out that social cognitive skills corresponded with higher educational resumes. They also found that social cognitive skills and higher pays are intimately correlated. The job skill network he created clearly showed two distinct tracts. High-income individuals employed more social cognitive skills, while low-income workers tended to use more sensory physical skills. Salary also increased with the magnitude of skills required by a job. Uh, we all looked at the salaries. Uh, we found that the skills of occupations explain about half of the variance of the salaries. Not only that, but they were more predictive than educational requirements of those occupations. You've just heard from Ahmed Abdelkarim from MIT. According to him, the skills your current job has also predicts the skills you'll pick up for the new job. Um, one of the important and interesting results was when you look at the individual's current skill set, they are highly predictive of what future skills they will acquire. And this is important because when you create training programs, that means that you should create training programs that are complementary with the current skill sets of an individual. That would increase the probability that they will be able to acquire that skill. But also, it means that if you train them in something that's not complementary, they will probably be lacking in the other skills that they need. An example could be, for example, um, truck drivers. If you try to treat, train them in programming, they might be definitely able to acquire that skill, but to become a software engineer or a software developer, there's a few other skill sets that are required along that skill. And so complementarity is very important for training programs. The polarization between the job skill clusters means that the movement and transition between jobs with different skill sets is not as fluid as we'd like to think they are. In fact, it shows how people relying on a low-paying skill set often get stuck. Uh, another thing is this polarization shows that actually individuals that are part of one cluster are not able to transition to the other. And that inability in the data could be explained by many factors. Of course, the ones that are part of the cluster that's more sociocognitive with better salaries, they are not motivated and they do not want to move to the other uh, cluster. But the real important thing is why don't the ones that are in the sensory physical not transition up the ladder, the mobility ladder, to the more desired cluster? And the answer is there are missing rungs. They're not able to because there are not a lot of occupations that allow them to transition through their skill evolution to get to the better side, in, in a sense. So how can we actually use this framework as individuals? Or if we're policymakers, how can we use this information to offer individuals better training or pave the way for smoother transitions between skill sets? The way that this framework can be used is, for example, for individuals, they can log into the website and use it as a decision support tool. Uh, for example, if they were prioritizing different jobs, 
they can prioritize them based on which ones would give them the best skills for maneuverability as well as a salary salary increase. And for policymakers, they would use it in order to better uh, create training programs that are more customized for the individuals being trained, picking training programs that are focused on skills that are more complementary to their current skill sets that would open up better future paths. For the full story by Siddhiri Shok, go to nature.com slash East. To help plan your own career path, you can use the network that Ahmed and his colleagues at MIT created by logging onto skillscape.mit.edu. You're now listening to a new episode of Nature Middle East podcast. Coming up, the confluence of art and science in the Syrian artist's meditation on time, mobility, and Einstein's theory of relativity. Syrian artist Hassam Kurbaj is fascinated with the flow of time. Its multidimensional aspect, he compares it to the sea breathing in and out through its graceful motion of cascading waves. He often speaks about artists and scientists and how the worlds collide or merge to form new worlds and new ideas. We analyze the world with the different tools. I analyze, I I don't reproduce the reality. I look at reality and I make something else out of it. I make another reality. I make another universe out of it. And I am really interested in um, observing the world but making another world. I believe, maybe I, this is how I understand the science, that's actually, it's instead of multiplying it, what I believe as an artist I, I am playing with or creating a new world, the scientist is actually digging deeper to another world within. This is what I feel that is the scientist is doing, is, is it's almost like zooming in where is probably the artist is zooming out. His latest installation featuring miniature boats that reflects the plight of millions of Syrians stranded between civil war and poverty features both the sea and the idea of time. It's inspired by the ideas of Albert Einstein and it's about displacement, movement and the relativity of things. The other day I was flying, I thought, would I have this um, energy of a cloud? the energy contained with the cloud. Imagine this kind of constantly transforming itself. Look at the cloud. How many things could be seen from underneath? It is, I feel, would I take my boats one day and actually would I be able to install them on the top of these clouds? Um, what kind of things they will have? What kind of, uh, what kind of energy? Kerbaj is also fascinated with light. Light flicks, a camera obscura, or prisms. Light in itself, or, or um, as an artist, white is a very complex material for me. It's not a pure color whatsoever. Who did say it is a pure? It contains all this multiplicity of colors underneath. So for me, dealing with when I read about Newton, or when actually a few years ago I read about Ibn al-Haytham al-Hazin, the Iraqi scientist that is 2015 was celebrating a thousand years of his book, the book of optics. And he was actually in the prison. I mean, imagine having that place in the prison with very access to light. He started thinking about light. So I found that is, you see, human spirit finds, always finds a way to be connected to the world, connected to the universe. Scientists do it in one way, 
artists do it in another way. Sarah Hiddleston interviews Kurbaj for a two-minute video feature on nature.com slash East and writes of the philosophy behind his art and the marriage of art and science in his work. For the full video interview, log on to our portal today or find us on YouTube or Facebook under Nature Middle East. If you've enjoyed this episode, do follow us on SoundCloud and iTunes. You can also get the latest news and feature stories delivered right to your email by subscribing to our bi-weekly newsletter. I'm Pakina Maimer. Thank you for listening. <laughs>